Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Psalm 73. This psalm is a psalm of Asaph, and it's called The Perspective of Eternity. I'm going to go through two things somewhat topically. Uh, we're going to go into Psalm 73, and then we're going to jump into Isaiah 6. But neither one of these are, are very long. And gee, what do you have to do anyway? Shovel your driveway and stuff, so might as well just relax and enjoy the fellowship with other brothers and sisters and not worry about what's going on out there for now. But... Psalm 73, this is Asaph really having struggles with his, maybe a little bit with his faith, with what he sees around him, with the wicked who are prospering, and he, he has a problem with it. And I love the Psalms because even in the Psalms of David, you see a problem, a vexation of mind. And then what happens is they go into prayer and they, they check with God, and, and it just could be a process. And eventually God reveals to them an answer. He speaks to them, you know, just like when we go into prayer and we have a difficulty that we're trying to work through. Um, we give it some time. You go to, go to prayer, and, and the Lord, he'll work it out. And it's an amazing thing how he does it. So God eventually puts everything in perspective for Asaph. So let's jump in here. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost, almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's, he's, I love this, he's introspective. Especially as brothers and sisters, as believers with the Holy Spirit, we should also be introspective. God says, you know, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit upon conversion. And the Holy Spirit will reveal things to us. So this is a neat thing. And we, we struggle too. Now, I, I really want this this morning to be something where you can go home and go, wow, these people were real in the Scripture. They were no different than me. They were human beings. They were flawed. So I'm going to just say, if you're going through something this morning, whatever it is, it's a trial, a temptation, just feeling flat in your walk, I think that by the time we're done this morning, I think you're going to be really encouraged by this. Because you're going to see two real people. They're not phonies. They're not... You know, we, we see a lot of the phoniness sometimes in, the, in Western Christianity because there's such, a, um, a such, such pressure to put on a certain appearance. But then when you go into the Scripture, you realize that's not necessary. We talked about this last Sunday as well. So he's struggling. But he does say, you know, he, he's not completely off the deep end because he is looking and understanding the goodness of God. Right? He almost slipped. Now, that doesn't mean he, it was snowing out and he slipped on the ice. What he's saying is that emotionally and spiritually, he was having struggles. He was envious in, in a way, maybe looking at the wicked who didn't have God, but they were doing really well. And you might be here this morning, and you might be just scraping by. Maybe it's financial. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe it's a, a situation at home. Maybe it's a, a, a medical issue that you just can't get past. Maybe it's addiction issue. And you just, you're just scraping by. And then you see some in the world who do rotten things, and they just seem to be doing so well, and you're struggling with that. Well, Asaph had the same issue. 
verse 4. I'll go through this. He says, For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. Even as they're going to their demise or dying, it seems like everything's fine with them. But remember, they didn't step into eternity yet. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. They're just proud. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They don't even care about people that are going through struggles. There's no compassion. And I just love the the psalmist, how they, they express things. There's just such an expression there. I like it, that passion. They speak loftily or proudly. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. You even have a situation where they um, say nasty things about God. You know, that they make fun of the righteous, God's people. And this is what's going on. Verse 10, it says, Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, they are the ungodly. These are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Uh, so one of the things that, especially marriage, marriage counseling, the two, two things you shouldn't say is always and never. You always do something that's negative or you never do something that's good. So there's a little bit of maybe even embellishment. And, and listen, have we gone through this? We get upset about something and, oh, why do I bother? This always happens to me. Well, listen, I'm not the only one who's done it. If you guys don't want to be honest, that's okay. <laughs> but the truth is, we, we do this. We embellish, you know. We go through something, and it's like we're the only person in the world, we're the only believer that's struggling. Good stuff, isn't it? It really is it's really ministering to the heart. So it says, look, the ungodly, are, are, they're even wealthy. They mock God. And, and here's where the bitterness comes in. He says, surely I have cleansed, or I have kept my heart pure. I have cleansed my heart in vain. You know, I I kept my heart pure, but what a waste it was. I washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Why do I bother doing the right thing? Right? Again, as, as believers, sometimes we can have our little pity parties. Why do I bother? What's the sense? Right? Not only am I trying to be righteous, but, you know, it just doesn't seem like I'm rewarded for it, but they get rewarded for it. And then we have to ask the question, what type of reward are we looking for? See, we can get confused when we, when we start maybe looking on Christian TV and seeing some of these prosperity teachers. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm still scraping by. I'm still barely, look at my checkbook. You know, there's not much in it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm having this difficulty. I, I can't get well. I can't get my, my uh, physical issues under control. What type of reward are we looking for? And if we're always looking for the reward that keeps us healthy, and strong, and there's money in the bank. Is that really what the Bible teaches? No, it's not. Verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful, too troublesome for me, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. This is the apex of his tirade and his emotional roller coaster. Let me paraphrase. He says, in a sense, I can't even say this publicly. First of all, people wouldn't understand. Maybe they don't even have the answers for me, and probably I'm going to stumble somebody. Believers, especially if we're trying to witness to people around us, sometimes there's just things we need to say to God. 
Sometimes there's things that we can say in a fit of anger or a fit of emotion where we hurt somebody's feelings. Maybe we stumbled an unbeliever that we've been working on for a long time and then we just kind of lose our cool and blow our witness. And Asaph was no different. He, he needed to go to God with some of these things. You know, even as a spouse, you know, we want to be so honest with our spouses. But maybe there's just some things that we need to go to God first because if we open our mouth, we'll hurt them. And he says, the whole thing is just too painful to think about. Have you ever been there? Have you ever said that in prayer? Lord, this is every time I think about this, it's just so painful. I can't get over this. I'm, having, I'm struggling with the forgiveness in this issue. It, just, it, it almost feels like your heart starts to hurt. That, that deep, visceral heart pain. Right? We've been there. We try to do the right thing. And it seems like the world rewards. And sometimes, erroneously, we think that Almost God rewards by not dealing with it, by looking the other way while the liars and the cheats and the bullies seem to get their money and their promotion and their nice things and their good health. God, what gives here? What gives here? Having a hard time with this. But he comes to the conclusion, which we all should as well. Listen, this is the beauty. Sometimes you read a, some holy book and religious book and you read it and you're, you're pained as you read it because it's not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Some of these so-called prophets that have gone uh, before, uh, not, not outside of the, of the biblical, and you read it and you're like, I can't even make an application here. Here's a, a, something that was written well over 2,000 years, almost 3,000 years ago, and we can make a personal application in 2015 in New Jersey at like 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, whatever time it is this morning. So this is what we have. He goes to God, and that's where we need to go too. Sometimes we go to people first. We, something bothers us up, uh, and we're, we're quick to pick up the phone. When maybe we should, I know, the phones are everywhere, <laughs> and the text and the, the messages, and you go on the computer and there's all these social media. Maybe it's good sometimes to just go, just look up first. That's the best place to go. Verse 18, he says, Surely you set them, meaning the wicked, in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. It's not, it's not as it seems, you know? It's not as it seems. And when we go through something that's affecting... Isn't it amazing how when somebody comes to you, you can sit down with them. They've got a problem, and you can counsel them, and you can pray with them, and you can be so calm through the whole thing. But when it's you... You know what it is? We, we don't look in the mirror very well. We, don't, we get confused. We sometimes need an outside source to look into our situation and, and, and put, place the facts where the facts need to be because we're not seeing it properly because it's from our perspective. However, the unrepentant, no matter how well they are doing, uh, will face certain judgment in the end. Seriously, what's so, so let's say you live 80, 90 years old, and you have a great life. You're wealthy, you're healthy right up to the end. Unspeakable blessings and riches, and then you die, and you have to stand in judgment, and your sins aren't atoned for. And you want to go back. Remember the, the rich man and Lazarus? And the rich man said to Lazarus, let, let me, you know, somebody go back and tell my brothers. You know, and, and, and he says, well, if somebody even rose from the dead, they, they wouldn't believe. And it's a sad thing. You know, a lot of people are going to face judgment. I don't, I don't think we're going to be cheering. I think we're going to be sad. Even, no matter how much bad things they did on this earth, it, it's certain destruction for them. 
So he's starting to understand that this is unmitigated and it's final judgment for the unrighteous. Verse 21. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Have we ever been there to, to kind of say to God, you know, after the thing works out, and we say, oh, Lord, I've been so stupid. He's saying, I was like a beast. <laughs> and again, I love the way they speak in the Old Testament. You know, he's like, what, what a dope I was. What a dummy. You know, we, we start to see things clearly now. and We realize, you know, God always had it under control. Why do I do this? You know, why do I, I panic and I, I, I'm concerned? And, and he always takes care of it. He always figures it out, of course. I just have to trust in him more. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Oh God, what a fool I've been to ever doubt you. And this is a, a picture of this relationship that he has with God. You know, this is really in, an adoration. God, you, you're, a fi you're fixed. You're always a constant. You're always the same. You're always righteous. You always have wisdom. It was me. I'm the one who strayed. But Lord, thankfully, I know that in heaven I always have you. I know I can always look up. I can always call upon you. and you, you hear what I have to say. Thank you for that. Thank you. Verse 27. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. What a difference from the last two verses from the first, I don't know, 12 or so, right? This is, I mean, how long did this take? Did it take a week? Did it take a day? Did it take a few hours? How quickly did he come to his senses? We don't know. But the cool thing is that he did come to his senses. And the really great thing is that when we come to our senses, when it comes to something we don't understand and we go to God, right? We've got to get to the point that he gets to. All right? That's very important. We can't linger somewhere around verse 12. We've got to get to verse 28. But this is a picture of uh, uh, starting out with a frustration, a misunderstanding, even an acute depression that we might have over a situation that's been lingering. But he gives me understanding. And he gives you understanding too if you want it. How does this fit in with the, with the prosperity gospel? It doesn't. Neither the New Testament or the Old Testament. All it does is actually helps to get prosperity teachers. It keeps them wealthy. Really, when they preach this stuff, they're the only ones that are millionaires. Everybody else usually is struggling and they want to get to that point. Uh, like John MacArthur said, it's like a Ponzi scheme. So we need to be grounded in what the Word of God says. That's important. At this point, you're going to maybe, I don't know, figure it out, but I'll, I'll kind of tie it in together. If you would, let's turn to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 in the Old Testament. This is uh, the blessing for Jewish believers uh, morning. We we're, all, we're on the Old Testament neck of the woods. Good stuff. Isaiah 6. This is one of my all-time favorites. There's so much in here, too. the commission of Isaiah the prophet. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, 
high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, this is a type of angel. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and the two remaining ones he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken, and the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. I'm going to take this in five parts. The first part here is that Isaiah sees the Lord. So the first thing that happens is the prophet Isaiah sees in some capacity, be it a vision, being somewhat veiled by the smoke, he sees the Lord. Now, in 740 B.C., just prior, a few decades prior to the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom, King Uzziah of Judah, one of Judah's most beloved kings, one of Judah's most longest reigning kings, dies. Dies. Now remember, the king was... Monarchies are different. We have presidents, and every four years we vote, and they, they go, and another one comes in, and they're balanced out by the balance of powers, the you know, little civics here, you know, the Congress, the Senate, and the uh, Supreme Court. So there's this type of balance of power. In this society, the king ruled supreme. There was no Supreme Court. There was no anybody to balance him. There was no legislative branch to make laws. He did it all. He was the king. So when you reigned for a long time, people got used to you, especially if you were a king with a good head on your shoulders and you were able to make the country prosper and things were happening. And maybe your country wasn't perfect, but you had somebody good at the helm. Thank God. When you had a horrible king, the people lived in a nightmarish type of uh, situation. So King Uzziah, popular king, he dies. However, Isaiah sees another king, God. This is contrasted Uzziah with the king of the universe and his glory. We can even contrast the throne rooms. We can look at heaven uh, in Revelation 4. We get a glimpse into the throne room of God, the sea of glass, the living creatures, wild stuff. Wild, awesome. You know, definitely don't want to see any of that unless you're covered under the blood of Christ. So that's contrasted with what the people saw. The king, the earthly king, he had wood, he, you know, foreign wood, he had gold, he had jewels, beautiful robe, and then, but we see the king of the universe. You see the contrast here? As we read this, think about a monarch, an earthly king. Think about the movies you might have seen. And then let's think about God himself. So here's this contract, contrast. There were seraphim who were an order of angels. Seraph means to burn in the Hebrew. And each angel, these weren't your low order of angels. This wasn't the cute Renaissance paintings of the little chubby children with the little, you know, the little ringlets and the little wings. These were seraphim. These were big, six-winged, I mean, six wings. With two, they cover their feet. Because wherever God is, it's holy ground. You know, it's almost like, I'm not really a sports fan, but I do know that the catchers, um, to give signs to the pitcher. They'll tug their ear, they'll do this stuff, and the pitcher will go, yes, no. The seraphim are giving signals to Isaiah. We're covering our feet. <laughs> God's here. This, this is, you know, you be, be careful how you tread. And with two, they covered their face. This is God over here in all of his glory. 
you can't even behold all of his glory. And the, the other two are just kind of keeping them, they're hovering with the other two wings. It's pretty wild, isn't it? You know, it, this, and, so, and people today too, they almost, they worship angels. This is great. These angels are very cool creatures, but remember, they serve the living God. They're completely submitted. They're completely obedient. They completely serve the living God. So let's put all of that into perspective. And they boom to each other. I believe it must have been like a whole bunch of subwoofers lined out. Right? And what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holiness. It doesn't say friendly God. It doesn't say funny God. It says holy God. And that's one thing we need to keep in mind. And as we grow in Christianity, we're supposed to become more holy. In other words, we look less... This world, our culture is so decadent. I think we've been desensitized for me. I'm 40-something years old. I've seen this stuff over the years that you just, oh, something else that you read in the paper. We live in a really decadent culture. The more we become submitted to the Lord, the more we read the Scripture, the more we become holy, the more we become different from the world and look more like Jesus. But God is ultimate. Nobody can tempt Him. Nobody can sway Him. Nobody can bribe Him because He is holy. Holy. I want to read two short scriptures to you in John. John 12, 41. This is Jesus actually speaking, right? Fast forward to the first century. Jesus is speaking about what Isaiah's mission was, which we'll get to in verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart, lest they should turn so that I should heal them. God speaking. Verse 41. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. And nevertheless, of course, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Speaking about Jesus. This, some believe, is a Christophany that Isaiah sees Jesus in his glory, pre-incarnate. Remember, this is 700 and some odd years before the incarnation. Jesus always was. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Right? It was only in the first century that he took the form of a person, but he was still fully God. There's another scripture in John 17, 5. So it says, And now, O Father, glorify me. Now, Jesus is on earth. He's praying to the Father. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Sometimes we read the Bible and we're like, we just kind of mow right over that because we want to get in our, our scripture reference for the day. Got to sit, relax, and meditate on the word. Right? Jesus had this glory before he took, and even as in the form of a man in the transfiguration, his glory ends up just exuding or it just permeates his, his muscle, skin, and bones, and they see him glowing white, and, and they're kind of freaked out by it, right? So some, some believe that this was a Christophany in a sense that Jesus, uh, an appearance of Jesus prior to the incarnation. It's an interesting conjecture. I mean, I'm not completely sold on it. If anything, it's a Trinitophany, which is a word I just made up. But, but it would be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In some respect, the Lord Jesus was a part of that prior to coming to the earth. Now, 
Why did all this happen? Well, let's, let's give you a little filler, a little setting, a little background. Probably what happened was King Uzziah dies. What's the nation going to do? What's the next king going to be like? Is he going to be good? Is he going to pick up the projects that Uzziah uh, started? Is he going to put the people in bondage? Yes, you know, send them back into idol worship. Are we going to lose our borders? Is the military going to protect us? Think about this, right? Think about, uh, again, president, it's hard to say because there's so many others that can pick up if the president fails. In this society, the king was supreme. So I believe that Isaiah, as a prophet, concerned for the nation, was praying in the temple, in the area of the temple. And then as a result of praying to God, what are we going to do now that King Uzziah died? God says, here I am. I've never left you. And if anything good Uzziah did for the nation, it was because I did it through him. Verse 5. Then I said, Isaiah responds, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'll just, uh, modern vernacular, I'm toast. I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Not only am I a sinner, but my whole nation is a sinner. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As a result of seeing the Lord, we see the second part here. The first part was Isaiah sees the Lord. The second part is Isaiah sees himself. A sinner. And that's what happens when we see the Lord. You see, when you come to church, and again, this is, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm like that salmon trying to swim against the current. Don't be beguiled. Don't be deceived by some of these ministries that you go and you listen, you watch it on TV, you go to the church, and all they do every Sunday is make you feel good about yourself. If that's the case, they're probably not teaching you the truth. And some have said to me, Pastor Joe, that's not, no way to grow a church by preaching like that. I don't care. I am tasked to tell you the truth. I have to stand before God. When we see God, when we read his word, we should come to a conclusion, and that is that I am a sinner. I am your pastor. I am a sinner. I will sin today. I will sin tomorrow. And I need Jesus as sacrifice for my sins. Amen? Okay, we're all awake this morning. Excellent. But it's true. You know, one of the things we say when I ask somebody to come up to receive the Lord, I say, repeat a prayer after me, and it's not about the words, but as you're repeating that prayer, you're, it's a reflection of how your, your heart understands what you believe. And what is the first thing that we say when we lead somebody to salvation? Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner in need of salvation. So we see God, we realize that we are a sinner, and we know that we need a remedy. We need a mediator. We need a Messiah. We need somebody to stand in for me. Job said the same thing. What am I going to do? I'm a sinner. So I love that about him. You know, we, again, we can throw all kinds of conjecture. Was this a Christophany? Um, did he see all of God's glory? Can you see all of God's glory and live? Maybe the smoke was something that clouded some of his glory, like Moses and Elijah both got to see a part of God, but he passed by and they saw his afterglory. Can we in a sinful state see all of God in his glory and live? I don't think the Bible says we can't. So there is something to that. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity, your sin is taken away, and your sin purged or atoned for. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? 
So Isaiah understands the Lord on a deeper level. He understands himself. And now there's a remedy. This, this tongue, this, you know, if it was the, the, the temple and the temple area, there were live uh, embers and coals and they did the sacrifices. Um, I don't think he disfigured Isaiah and, and put the thing in his face and his lips melted. I think this was a picture of the atonement. This was a picture of what Christ would eventually do for us on the cross, the sacrifices, all that stuff. But there was something that went on, something figurative, maybe something actual, but it didn't deform him. Deform him. Obviously, he can still speak. But this is what happened. So you have to understand the symbolism here. The third point, Isaiah sees God, Isaiah sees himself. The third point, now he's being prepared for ministry. Right? We understand God, we understand ourselves. Now we can go and in the Lord's strength do things for God. It's kind of hard to, you know, it's really good that there's a lot of things that people are doing for the homeless and for, we do a lot of stuff too, but we've got to be prepared first because otherwise it's just the work. I'd rather do it that, that is something that God tasked me to do. You know, it's it just, it's much great. I'm working for the CEO of the universe. I dig it. I like that. God will do the same thing for everybody in this room. See God, see yourself. Do you want to serve? Do you want to be in ministry? Do you want to be used by God? Not one person here can't be used by God. Just like Isaiah, just like the leaders of this church, just like anybody in ministry, you want to be in ministry, you want to serve the living God, you can. You absolutely can. He will prepare you for ministry as well. And the more we get to know God, the more we should desire to serve Him. I want to read to you two scriptures, which is a, maybe an, an, a mindset what the Lord sees of the planet of people, mankind, as he looks out. I'm going to do one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Second Chronicles 16.9. Listen, all the scripture has context. But there's a general truth here. Second Chronicles 16.9, I love this. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro. He's scanning the earth throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong. He didn't say to show the people strong, or me strong, or you strong. To show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. He needs an empty vessel. He needs us to not be so self-absorbed that it's all about me. He needs us to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's what he's looking for. He can't work with stubborn donkeys if, if they don't want to work with him. He can do anything he wants, but he's not going to trample over our free will. He says, so he, he's, he needs to show himself strong on behalf of those who, whose heart is loyal to him. And I won't read the rest because that's contextual. Uh, moving on to the New Testament, Jesus says this in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So we understand the general truth that when, when the Lord looks over the face of the earth, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, everybody, most people, I don't want to be like Asaph and say everybody, most people, are doing stuff for themselves, even Christians. Christians are aggrandizing themselves, they're getting bigger and better, and, and this and that, and accumulating wealth, and accumulating education, accumulating all this stuff, and those things in itself are not bad, but God's looking for somebody that he can use. And the majority of the planet is not interested. Isn't that sad? Who wouldn't want to work for God, <laughs> right? You can't have a mean boss or an unfair boss or a boss that plays favorites or promotes the wrong person because of you know, nepotism. This is God. So 
the desire is to serve the Lord. Can he count on you? Can he count on you? He can count on Isaiah, that's for sure. Verse 9, going back to Isaiah 6, it says, And he said, God said, Go and tell this people. Isaiah, go tell your people. You're the prophet. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes, their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? <laughs> and he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So the fourth point is the harsh reality of ministry. God is awesome, God is fair, God is loving, God encourages, he protects us. But when we go out into the world and we do his ministry, sometimes it's not received well. Does God want their eyes to be sleepy? Does he want them not to hear? No. But, you know, here's the funny truth about God's word. When you go, and you, you've noticed it in your life, you ever get, you're, you're really working with somebody and you're really witnessing to them, and maybe they're interested. And this goes on for weeks, months, maybe even years. And then, you know, you, you're just at the point where you think something positive is going to happen, and you just really tell them about the Lord, and all of a sudden they get nasty with you. Or they turn on you. They don't want to speak to you anymore. Or members of your family think you're a kook and they don't invite you to stuff. Your own family. This is biology here, right? Hereditary, DNA. You go into the world and, and you're, you're, you're marginalized, you're maligned because people are not naturally inclined to God's word and the things that he wants to do. So for some, they can actually become harder. Some, they become softer and they eventually Submit to the Lord, which is the plan, which is the idea. A lot of Western Christianity makes ministry glamorous, but it's often not glamorous. On a personal note, over the years I've seen divorce, suicide, rejection, overdoses, those that pretty much are staying in quicksand. Some that have come up to receive the Lord and have gotten in some really bad trouble, and they don't want to hear it anymore. It's almost like you're watching them sinking in quicksand, and you're Listen, I can't go into the quicksand with you, but here's my hand. And they're like, you know, it's, it's very massaging. You know, it's, it's very warm in here. And as they're sinking and it's going up to their neckline, you can watch, you can try to help, but they won't take the help. So in a lot of ways, ministry can be acutely depressing. And this is something that Isaiah is seeing here, right? Verse 11, Isaiah says, well, how long, Lord? Okay, I said I'll go. You told me what to do, but how long? I have to snicker because I don't know how he said it. You know? Um, wow, Lord, this doesn't look like a lot of fun. I mean, can I do this for a few weeks, a few months? You know, what's the plan here? Again, I don't know. the con I don't know. But I think it's funny that he asked how long. And he says, and, and, and it gets worse. Well, in terms of what the nation is going to look like, things are just going to get really bad from here. Now, remember... In 740 B.C., King Uzziah dies. In 722 B.C., remember, you've got to go backwards as you're going B.C. So going less, the number getting less is actually moving forward in time. So 722 B.C., not many years from there, the Assyrians were going to invade. And they weren't going to completely take Judah, but they were going to make it miserable for the Judahites. They were going to actually take the northern kingdom, expatriate the people back to Assyria, 
put their people in, and then you had this, these mixed people. And then you have the Samaritans, right? And then the Judahites, had a little, they're a little arrogant because their northern brethren were mixed. They were mixed with Gentiles, and they looked down upon them. So everything falls into place when we read the Scripture. The Bible records history. It's not always pretty. A lot of it's sinful on the part of these people, but it records history. It, it gives you the truth. So then in, in, in 586 B.C., then the Babylonians were going to come, and eventually they were going to besiege Jerusalem, destroy the place, destroy the temple, do the same thing that the Assyrians did to the northern kingdom. So this is the future. God is giving Isaiah. It's bleak. I've got to be honest with you. Things don't look good for our country either. I mean, seriously, do we think Denmark, France, I mean, we had 9-11. Oh, that was so long ago. We don't think that something's going to happen here. We've had some beheadings, whereas we, we've read, I've read about things that don't really hit the national media that happen in our own country that's going on. Do we really think that we're immune because we're Americans? We've got to get that Americentric idea out of our heads. It has no place in Scripture. All it's going to do is confuse us when we look in the Scripture. So what should we be doing? We've got to serve the Lord. Verse 13. But, here's the good news. But yet a tenth, 10% will be in it. And will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Fifth and last part is the silver, silver lining. The remnant, the small percentage, the 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Remember Elijah, he runs. Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. So Elijah is the prophet of God. He does an amazing thing on the top of Mount Carmel. And he panics and he runs, runs as far as he can. And God catches up to him and says, what are you doing here? I got work for you to do back over there. Come on, I, uh, Elijah. And he's just going in his pity party. And the Lord says, I have 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal, that false god. Go back there. You don't belong here. It's exciting, isn't it? Western Christianity can portray the opposite. Big, big, big. The phenomena that we deal with in the Western Christianity, we don't see overseas. You know, lights, show, this, that, big. Not according to the Scripture. A lot of times, big numbers are like Jesus says in Mark 4. The mustard plant that grows abnormally becomes a tree and the fowls of the air nest in its branches. And that is a, a picture of evil that gets into the church. And do we have problems in the Western church? Absolutely. Absolutely. The more, the larger, the bigger. You know, I even see this in big city police departments. Why do they have such problems? Because they're, they're putting so many officers on the road at the same time. It's hard to, you know, to uh, manage each particular person. And some slip through the cracks. You know, That's what happens when you have big. You'll have these things. It's easier to worm in there and get clicks and get pockets of, of, of infestations and, and leavenous situations. Isaiah, or Isaiah, the Lord's saying to him, 10%. 10%? I don't know if he said that. I might say that. 10%? Can we get 50 or 60? No, 10%. Doesn't seem like a lot. But see, God works in the small numbers. He works in those 10%. 10%. You know, it's, it's like this. He talks about these different types of trees. And I've had these in my yard where you, you cut a tree down or for whatever reason, um, and it's, it left this big stump. And you see these shoots that come up. You give those shoots long enough time, they'll grow into another tree. 
So it kind of seems like the tree is dead. It's so sad. What happened? Was it ants? Was it this? But then the, these shoots come up and it, it'll start all, the process starts all over again. And God works in that. God works in the patience. He works in the small numbers. He works in the growth process. Yeah, I see what everybody else is doing in the world. But my eyes that have run to and fro on the face of the earth have found a few people. And I'm going to work on them because they're loyal to me. And I'm going to show myself strong through them. Do you want to be part of that 10%? You can get lost in the Christian community. You can get lost in the big numbers and, the, and all the big uh, events and stuff, you know. Do you want to be part of that 10%? I know I do. To the very end, no matter what happens to this country, no matter what happens to Western Christianity, no matter what happens to Calvary Chapel, unless the Lord changes direction, this is where I'm going to be. Not a lot of people here this morning, isn't it? However, it's It's real. It's exciting. It's, it's personal to you. You can leave here this morning and take it with you as you go home. What's the nexus between Psalm 73 and Isaiah 6? I think the nexus is a mirror. What's your next move? You saw Asaph. You saw that he has the same problems that you do, the same concerns that you do. However, he comes to his senses after praying to God and communing with God and getting an answer from God. Go, go Asaph. Just do what I've called you to do. What about Isaiah? Lord, what are we going to do? Uzziah's dead. I'm still here, God says. I'm still here. And as long as I'm still here, I've got things for you to do. Well, it looks, it looks pretty bleak, Lord. Just go and do what I ask you to do. You'll, you'll be in good company with that 10%. So I would ask you, Calvary Chapel Crossfields, what are you going to do now? There's a few of you. But God will use you if that's your desire to be used. Oh, the wicked will prosper in Asaph's day, in David's day, and in our day. The wicked, I got news for you, the way things are going, will probably take over the United States at some point, whether through within or without or a combination of both. This is my uh, positive message for you this morning. But the Lord is still in the same place. He's been in the same place for the last 3,000 years since reading this. Do what the Lord calls us to do. Growing in his word, serving, seeking to save the lost, being a part of what God is doing in your church community or even in your own backyard, in your own neighborhood. Maybe God gave you that job that doesn't pay much because you're going to be an influence over those people. Maybe God put you in a difficult family because he wants you to be a light in that family. All right, listen, I'm, I come from the Sicilians. We're not easy people to get along with. So, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, God may put you in a situation, okay, where he wants to use you to be that light. So the question before we close is, is your response to God, here am I, send me. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you. Let the